Great. Okay. Well, <laughs> welcome everybody. Um, I hope this doesn't look too daunting. I'm not going to work my way through this, by the way. I just wanted some selected quotes out of some of these notes I've got. How to start this evening? I'm going to be talking for the bulk of what I say this evening is, going to, is about probably one of the most misunderstood aspects of Buddhist thought, which is uh, the doctrine of not-self. What does it mean to be a self? I think I called this talk or, or something like that. Uh, because this is really at the crux of the teaching. Um, it's the crux of one of the things that Vipassana meditation is all about. Mindfulness meditation is actually being, actually having a direct experience of what it is to be a not self. I'll go into what this means. Um, but it's a highly significant, important dimension of what the Buddha is teaching. I can't really say anything more than that in terms of stressing its importance. Um, let me read you a quote to start with. It's actually a quote that comes from Sangyutanikaya, which is the connected discourses of the Buddha. Uh, and the Buddha says it, I think, fairly eloquently here. He says, he who imagines is bound by Mara. Mara is the, the figure who's um, really, well, the word Mara means death in Pali. And it's the person who brings death to life. And so Mara is a kind of tempter figure. Some of you who probably know the uh, story of the Buddha's um, so-called enlightenment, his awakening, uh, will know that he's tempted by Mara um, and his many legions, including his daughter. We get many temptations of Mara. Um, but here it's a figure that represents that kind of bringing death to life. He who imagines is bound by Mara. He who does not imagine is freed from this evil one. I am this is an imagining. I shall not be. This is an imagining. This I am. This is an imagining. I shall be. This is an imagining. I shall not be. This is an imagining. Established shall I be. Embodied shall I be. Formless shall I be. I shall be conscious. I shall be unconscious. Neither conscious or unconscious shall I be. This is all imagining. This imagining is a disease. Imagining is an abscess. It's a barb. I am is an, is an agitation. I am is a palpitation. I am is a delirium. I am is finally a conceit. Do you think you've got a problem? <laughs> <laughs> I, I think that sort of in a way underlines the magnitude of the problem that the Buddha is really talking about. There seems, as I say, to be a problem with I am. And the, we, the way this is constantly used as a reference in, in terms of our own lives as being the kind of center from which all experience revolves or circulates or emanates, whichever way you want to put it. So all of this experience is coming out. This is not a new thing, even in Western thought, is to try and understand what this sense of self is, this I am, which is the constant reference point in our language. Um, philosophers over the centuries um, have made a stab at trying to understand what the notion of the self is. Neuroscientists are trying to do it at the present time. Uh, Daniel Dennett, who's a philosopher of science, actually says this. He says, you enter the brain through the eye, march up the optic nerve, round and round the cortex, looking behind every neuron, and then before you know it, you emerge into daylight on the spike of a motor impulse, scratching your head and wondering where your self is. Yeah. This is the problem. Now, before I embark on really examine this problem, I want to put the, a little bit about what the Buddha says in context. The one thing to understand is this figure who we call the Buddha. And I do mean who we call the Buddha, because in the earliest strata of the text, he's very, 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 very rarely referred to as the Buddha. He himself refers, he actually refers to himself as the Tathagata, which means somebody who's thus come, thus gone. It's an ambiguous term in Pali, which can mean either, either both, and I think he's playing on both senses of the term. Sometimes he refers to himself as I, very rarely, usually as the Tathagata, and mostly he's referred to as the Bhagavat, actually the, the Lord, um, by his disciples. Very rarely is he referred to as the Buddha. 
Now, without going into too much detail, the only thing I really want to stress is the Buddha is an absolute revolutionary. As I used to say to my students, uh, particularly when I was teaching Buddhist studies, just, um, just, just simply Buddhist studies, not in a department of psychiatry, which is what I work in these days, um, I used to say that the Buddha was really the first psychologist. He was really the first person who brought this psychological perspective to bear on human experience. He brought it to bear on an enormous problem, the problem which he said he teaches, and he teaches the overcoming of. This problem in, in Pali is referred to as dukkha. Um, if there's ever a word I wanted to naturalize into the English language without having to go through translation, it's this word dukkha, because being the centrality, being the central term in the Buddha's teaching it really isn't done justice to by the term that it's usually translated by, which is suffering. This is not a good translation of the term. It's one end of the spectrum. It's a, it's a, it's a word that means many, many things, both in Pali and Sanskrit. Um, specifically, it can mean anything from minor irritation to full-blown tragedy. You know, and I mean from really minor irritation. It really covers the warp and woof of our lives. You know, the kind of interweaving, it's woven into the texture of ordinary experience, into the ordinariness of our everyday experience. In my early training when I was living in India, I was very lucky to study with one of the Dalai Lama's tutors, and he used to say that actually dukkha wasn't like being stabbed, he used to say. It wasn't like something really sharp and painful. He said it was like slowly rubbing your arm against the brick wall. You know, this is what it was. It became more and more painful. It wasn't something which was felt immediately, apart from on, on odd occasions. Most of our experience was like this slowly having our arms rubbed against a brick wall. So there's a friction in our experience. It's this friction which we call dukkha. Etymologically, I won't do much of this with you this evening because it's not really a time and place, but it's an interesting word in, in Pali and Sanskrit. It really means something like a, a dirty place or a dirty space. It actually referred to the hole in um, a wheel of a chariot or a, or a cart into which the axle fitted. And that hole which was literally the space in which the axle was fitted, was packed with grease and dirt and grit. And it went round and round and round. I mean, I don't know if that sounds anything familiar to you. <laughs> um, something going round and round and round and rather abrasive. Um, often can be called life. <laughs> you know, the term that the Buddha uses it's not, an, it's not a term and actually one of the strokes of genius that the Buddha had was he drew, he drew upon primarily existing vocabulary in Indian languages primarily the language of the Brahmins in ancient India to um, basically give his teachings so he was using a language that was often familiar but using it in unfamiliar ways and he's doing this over and over again. So he takes his turn, sangsara, which was uh, a term which literally referred to birth, death, and rebirth, particularly in the Upanishadic tradition and the earlier Brahmanical tradition, but primarily in the Upanishadic tradition. And sangsara, in the Buddha's terms, came to refer to the repetitiveness of experience, the things we do over and over and over again. So if you've ever been having that feeling of deja vu, that you're doing something now, you were possibly doing two years ago, five years ago, ten years ago, you probably are. Yeah. This is why we experience it. This is sangsara, literally derived from a Pali Sanskrit root, which means to go round in circles. Yeah. This is what we're doing, going round in circles. There is a, a repetitiveness and a circularity to experience. We go round and round and round and round, and doesn't it get tedious? Have you ever noticed that? In terms of our ordinary experience, there's a feeling quality to life which is tedious in the sense I keep making the same mistakes again and again and again. A friend of mine, and I wish I'd coined the phrase myself, a friend of mine once referred to it and said, well, sangsara, as far as he was concerned, was just one vast bad habit. <laughs> you know, this is what sangsara was, with this, the tendency to keep on repeating. 
Now, the, cent the centrality, uh, one of the central features of the Buddha's teaching, and this is the one which I'm going to focus on this evening, is literally that which we go round and round in circles around. In fact, so much so that this notion of the self, which is so, so problematic in, in Buddhist thought and practice, let's not just talk about thought, it's actually the practice of it, is something we find ourselves literally running round. He likens it in one of the texts in the Majjhimanikara in the middle-length discourses to a dog tied or tethered to a post of which the dog goes round and round and round. It can't get away. It has no freedom. It's just tethered to this post. The post is the self to which we are tethered to. Now, very specifically, the Buddha is speaking within a culture and you have to remember this, he's speaking within a culture in which the notion of a self was something which was indestructible. The self in Upanishadic thought, primarily, which was called the Atman in Sanskrit, was something which was indestructible, so much so that reincarnation became something which arose very much out of the Upanishadic tradition and became really part of contemporary Hinduism, become part of contemporary Hinduism and part of historical Hinduism. The Atman was that which was reborn. So it was you that was reborn. It was the real you, if you want to put it that way. It's kind of more contemporary terminology. Go out looking for your real self in ancient India and you came across the Atman. This was the real you. It, had, it was like a sort of little package that had you know, John stamped on it that went from life to life. Um, it's what I call the bouncing ball theory. You know, the kind of, it just bounced from lifetime to lifetime. And it was the same thing that was, that was kind of reborn every time. Now, basically, the Buddha's stance on this notion was, because he was primarily an empiricist, that actually, in my experience, I cannot find such a thing. I cannot find an Atman. I cannot find an indestructible self, which is, if you like, outside of the very vagaries of space and time, and everything associated with space and time. Um, almost a la um, David Hume, the Scottish philosopher, who once said, every time I look inside myself and myself, all I come to is bundles of perceptions. Yeah. I cannot find a self. Very similar to Dennett. Um, let's use a literary figure. Catherine Mansfield, the short story writer, once said, she said, every time, I, you know, every time I'm told to be true to myself... I'm rather puzzled by this, because when I look inside myself, all I can find is a concierge in charge of a hotel with 100 guests. <laughs> so, you know, I think both make the point, don't they? That it's very difficult to pin down this notion of what we mean to be a self. Yet... We've only got to get angry, we've only got to strongly desire something, and there I am. Yeah. Now this tells you something about the nature of the self, particularly as it's understood by the Buddha, is the self is a product, like everything else. The self is a product of craving, and it's a product of aversion. Um, we're outside of the craving and aversion... Um, actually, we're quite happy most of the time. If you notice it, if there's not a lot of craving around, there's not a lot of aversion around, we come and bumble our way through the world um, reasonably okay until you get the, to the shop window. There you are. Until somebody does something to you dislike, there you are again. You know, so every time we really start to see this strong sense of self coming through, it's often emerging in situations which are products of both craving and aversion. I'll return to this later, because I think I want to leave this hanging for a second. It's a very important idea that um, when we start to examine the nature of the self, we also start to examine the nature of aversive tendencies and craving tendencies in our lives. Movements towards something and movements away from something. The Buddha goes on in many of the very old texts, and there's a strata of the Pali Canon which is very, very ancient. Um, it's called the Sutta Napata. I'm actually engaged in doing a translation of it myself at the moment. 
And in a very old section of it, which is the Attica Varga, the section of eights, the Buddha says this, the sage should completely stop the thought I am, which is the root of all naming associated with conceptual proliferation. Now, conceptual proliferation, this is a term which, um, it's a beautiful word in Pali. It's, a, it's the word, it's actually in Sanskrit it's prapancha, but in Pali it's papancha. It's a lovely kind of labial sound off the lips here. This term papancha is um, associated with thinking running amok, thinking out of control. The actual word papancha in uh, Pali means to complicate, to think self-reflexively, to reify, to proliferate, the use I've made of it in that translation, to exaggerate, uh, to elaborate, to distort, and to obsess. It's a nice kind of list, isn't it? <laughs> you know, so when your thinking is running wild, you're probably up to some of that. You know, complicating, thinking self-reflexively, reifying, proliferating, exaggerating, engaged in distortion, and obsessing. <laughs> Yet that's most of our normal thinking. You know, when there is a self involved, that is most of our normal thinking. Most of it is centered around this notion of who I am, what I am, what I want, what I don't want, how I want to be, and how I manifest in this world on my day-to-day -day basis. So when we start talking about this problem that the Buddha has, the problem of dukkha and its relationship with the self, we're not talking about something abstract. I really want to bring home to you that the Buddha never teaches anything in the early texts. Later Buddhist thought gets sometimes very abstract. It gets very philosophical. It gets uh, very hyper-psychological. In the early text, in the, in the Pali text in particular, and in the Chinese equivalents of them, you find a teacher here who is teaching and who is concerned about practical issues. How you are in this world how you can understand the nature of the mind so that you stand a chance of being able to live ethically in this world. Not only, I ought to mention, was the Buddha the first psychologist, he was probably one of the first ethicists. You know, when we come to the way that our psychology is divided up, he divides it up into that which is skillful or wholesome, kusala. He divides it up into that which is unwholesome or unskillful, akusala recommending we should develop the one and in the interim drop the other. You know, develop the skillful in our lives and start to drop the unwholesome and the unskillful in our lives. This, so this is a very practical concern. It's not a theoretical concern. When we start to think of the nature of the self, you know, look at Catherine Mansfield's quote, you know, a concierge in charge of 100 guests in a hotel. That's often more, I think, the real felt experience of what it means to be a self in this world. It's actually a difficult business. I don't know if you've ever noticed that. It's actually a business which is full of trauma, uh, full of difficulty. Um, if I draw, the, if I, as I usually do when I do this kind of talk, um, if I had a whiteboard here and I draw the, the first person pronoun in English on the board, you'd get a nice I, wouldn't you? first-person pronoun. Look at that eye. Just imagine it for yourself, that little eye. Doesn't it look all lonely? <laughs> that eye. It's terribly stick-like. Um, has great difficulty holding itself together. You know, the top might fly off and the bottom might drop off. You know, but that eye is having great difficulties. Um, yet this is what actually dominates most of our ordinary day-to-day thinking and perceptions. Our perception is literally dominated by I experience. Now, we have many ways of talking about this in the Western world. We have the ways of talking about it as a self, perhaps not so commonly. We certainly have a way of talking about it in relationship to Freud's ego you know, and all the various manifestations and the ways that have been, has come through the psychotherapeutic tradition of talking about the self as the ego. Well, in Tibetan, I think that makes it very clear. Um, when they translate the notion of the self in Tibetan, it becomes a word in Tibetan which is nage, which actually means the I as king. 
you know, there you go, right at the, hot, the, the center, or the eye is queen, you know, right at the center of your experience, lording it over everything else. Very little relationship with others. When the eye is dominant, when this eye of perception is dominant in our experience, it actually starts to cut off our relations with others. You know, it becomes, and I'm going to sort of make a joke out of it to start with, but I'm making a serious point as well. It becomes me first, me second, me third, me fourth. And you might get in a look, but not very lightly. You know, Iris Murdoch, the, um, the philosopher and novelist, actually called it the great big fat restless ego. You know, the ego that sat there obfuscating experience. You know, it might take a peek around it occasionally, but most of the time what you're getting is the ego. Um, we like our friends to basically reflect back that ego. We even like our animals to reflect back that ego. You know? We love to be loved, and what we're really loving is ourselves. Um, there is a mythology about this in Western thought, which some of you will know. It's called Narcissus. Yeah, the French psychoanalyst Jacques Lacan once wrote a paper called the Mirror Stage paper, which was in 1949. And in that paper, basically, he made a joke, which was that apes are more intelligent than human beings. Um, because he said if you... He was actually concerned about talking about human development and the development of um, basically the ego through the notion of mirroring behavior or literally coming into contact with mirrors, as we do, obviously, in Western culture at a very, very early age. But what this mirroring behavior did was it actually pushed something into experience which wasn't there for the child, which was basically the idea of wholeness when there was fragmentation there. Um, but Lacan um, has this notion. He said, what happens with an ape, basically? Um, when you hand an ape a mirror. Well, it goes something like this, doesn't it? <laughs> Once it's done that, it loses all interest. You know? Once it's seen there's nothing behind the mirror. What happens to human beings? <laughs> Forever. <laughs> You know, human beings are literally captivated. Now, if any of you know your myth of Narcissus, there's quite a number of them. They were very popular in the medieval period. If any of you know the myth of Narcissus, what actually happens to Narcissus is there's a young, beautiful boy who sees his reflection reflected in a pool of water. And what, he, of course, he does, he falls in love with his own reflection, falls in and drowns. I mean, what a wonderful metaphor for human existence. You know, we are literally drowning in ourselves a lot of the time. Now, without pushing the case, I think we've got the problem. I hope you've got the problem by now. The problem is the self. A, it cuts us off from experience. B, it is the center around which all of our experience is oriented. And I think C, it's actually productive of the very thing that we're trying to avoid. It's productive of dukkha. It's productive of this friction in our lives. It's productive of all of the angst, if I can use that word, the angst which is associated and surrounds actually being a self in this world. And I think particularly in the modern Western world, let's not even talk about Asian culture, in the modern Western world, being a self is a really fraught business, isn't it? It's um, full of pathos. It's full of pain, actually, put to put not too fine a point on it. It's actually a lot of pain and aggravation and angst. Not a lot of pleasure in being a self sometimes. So this is the Buddha's problem situation, that right at the heart of this dukkha that we experience, right at the center of it, which is why it's the center of his teaching, is this notion of the self. We've actually covered two terms here, albeit very briefly so far. We've covered two terms which are associated primarily with what the, one of the, well, actually what the major insights of the Pasana meditation are all about. One is the self and the nature of the self, how it actually is, how it really is in this world. 
And the second is Dukkha. The third, which I haven't mentioned, is the one which is, of course, in a sense, underwriting both of these. It's impermanence. So we have anicca, dukkha, anatta. Anicca, impermanence, or anitya in Sanskrit. Dukkha and anatta, or anatman. Impermanence, dukkha, and not-self. These are the three characteristics of all existence, the Buddha is saying. We don't have an opt-out clause here. There's not something we say, actually, yeah, the not-self is not too bad, but I don't think I'll have the impermanence. (laughs) There's no opt-out clause. This is what we get. It comes as a package, a job lot of having these three things come together. That experience primarily is these three things. It's experience of impermanence. You know, everything is changing. Everything around us is changing. Changes at different rates. And not all impermanence is bad. As I was saying to a group the other day, you know, impermanence that works for us is actually good impermanence. You know, when the headache stops, you know, that's not bad impermanence. You wouldn't want to go, I want my headache to stay around. However, when, I don't know, when you lose your job, that's the kind of dukkha you don't really want and it's the kind of impermanence you don't really want in your life. So when we say impermanence is, is actually associated with dukkha, the dukkha is usually, is usually associated with something I don't want to happen. It's something we're resistant to. Something I don't want in my life. So the change which we, which we don't welcome is change which works not for our good but to our detriment in some way. However, all things are changing. This is the Buddha's diagnosis. There is not one thing, he says, that we can look around, no one safe place in this world um, that isn't subject to change. In a very famous passage in the Sutta Napata, this actually becomes part of the key for his journey, his own exploration, his own looking, if you like, for an understanding of what this life, this ordinary life that we all lead, is about. What does it really mean? How can it be different? And how can we fulfill a a sort of potential that most of us only dimly glimpse on occasions? We don't actually bring to fruition in our lives. And the Buddha, in many senses, both as the exemplar of this tradition and as a figure, in a sense, is, if you like, human being with its potentiality realized. This is what it's about. It's very clear in the early tradition the Buddha is not a godlike figure. He's a human being. He lives and he dies. And once he dies, he plays no further part in this world other than through his teaching, through his dispensation. At the end of his life, he's still reiterating the story of impermanence. Poor old Ananda. Ananda is his attendant attendant for over 20-odd years. And he's actually his cousin. Um, When the Buddha is dying, Ananda is leaning on the doorpost of um, of his hut, um, wailing and the Buddha says, says to him something to the effect of Ananda have you actually been listening to me <laughs> yeah. didn't I say that all things <laughs> that are compounded will eventually disappear yeah. his very last so called recorded words of his life which the, all these by the way you can look up you can find them in the Mahaparinibbana Sutta, I think it's called the Buddha's last days in the translation. And it covers the very last days of the Buddha's life, the last few months actually of the Buddha's life. And the very last teaching he gives, you might think, you know, having spent 45 years teaching, I, I think how horrific, 45 years of teaching. You know, he spends 45 years teaching, but not just teaching, walking and teaching. Huge distances. In, in Bihar and Uttar Pradesh and in India, you know, which are these places, uh, you know, in contemporary Indian geography. You know, he spends his time teaching. At the end of his life, you'd expect him to give an enormous dispensation, kind of sum up his teaching. You know, and what he actually says is this. I'm going to give you my translation of this in a kind of colloquial idiom here, which is, everything you see is impermanent. Now get on with it. This is actually what he says. Now, if you want the more elegant translation, as it's put in the, um, in the edition that you'll find published by Wisdom, um, by, um, oh, I forget who the translator is now, but uh, 
is a German, a German speaker. Um, but he, he translates this as, all compounded phenomena are impermanent, strive on diligently. <laughs> but basically, very idiomatically, the Buddha is saying, actually, everybody, everything is impermanent, now get on with it. And what is he really saying by this? And I haven't lost the thread, by the way. I'm going to come back to the self. What is he actually saying by this? He's actually saying that we're not going to encounter the safety of something secure and permanent in our lives. So what is left? What is open to us? What is left open to us with that, with that sense of everything is impermanent, that there is no safety, there is no securities, no matter how deeply we look into experience, we won't find one thing that we can attach ourselves to which is unchanging. There is not one person we can attach ourselves to who is unchanging. All things, literally all things, are impermanent. Well, one thing it calls for, and this is something which is very, very much part of this path, it's actually to do with energy. And the word virya, which is usually translated as energy in Sanskrit and Pali, actually has this little compound at the beginning, vir. And all everything which has vir in it, like um, the founder of the Jain tradition, Mahavira, the great conqueror, um, the word vir means heroism, courage. Yeah. So what we are needing to confront our lives is a degree of heroism and courage with it. Not the heroism and courage, actually, which wouldn't be heroism and courage, actually. Actually, the sort of things that would make us turn away from life, but actually the courage and heroism which would make us turn towards life with all of its difficulties. And this is really what the Buddha is trying to get, is getting us to actually confront the difficulties that life has. Part of that difficulty is obviously impermanence. Not just the, not the impermanence that works for us. I mean, that's very easy. I mean, we all like that stuff when it changes for our better. But the impermanence that's not working for us, the difficulty, the loss that inevitably everybody is going to suffer in life, the loss of loved ones, the loss sometimes of jobs and possessions and status and power. The one thing, as we know, and I think the poet Rilke made this very, very explicit in one of his Duino elegies, he said, we live in this world forever taking leave. Yeah. He said, we are almost like bowls of steam on a cold day, just evaporating. This is what we are. I think it's a lovely image that he gives us of what it means. Everything around us is somehow evaporating. Now, I think that takes a great deal of courage and heroism to confront that but to confront it actually without the sense of a permanent fixed self it seems rather odd as well if if i say this phrase and probably you're all going to nod sagely and say yeah everything's impermanent until it comes to you losing something <laughs> or breaking something yeah. or having something stolen, then impermanence isn't just a nice abstract story. Impermanence starts to hit home. You know, so there's a, kind of, there's, a, there's a kind of common consensus for the fact that all things are impermanent. And this is, this is the important part about this teaching, is not just to hear it as something, as a proposition which we can intellectually subscribe to, but as something we can actually feel and experience in our own life. Now, here's the Buddha's little mantra for our experience. It's peppered throughout the Pali Canon. Uh, throughout all of the um, teachings, the Buddha says, whatever I encounter that arises in my mind, this is not I, this is not me, and this is not mine. Whatever we are going to encounter... And that's the thoughts that are arising and passing away, the experiences, the physical experience that arise and pass away. Thoughts in particular are the most beautiful exemplar, aren't they, of impermanence. Have you noticed thoughts? They arise and they pass away. You know, that's their job. They arise and pass away. 
However, we all take them so damn seriously. Have you noticed how seriously we connect them? They start to be taken seriously as soon as I connect an I to it. When they become my thoughts, my experiences, when this beautiful object becomes my beautiful object rather than your beautiful object, have you noticed if somebody had, you know, let's, let's take a silly example. You know, if, you, if I had a beautiful vase and you had a beautiful vase and your beautiful vase was identical to my beautiful vase, they came out of the collection, you dropped and broke your beautiful vase, I probably wouldn't feel anything. I drop and break my beautiful vase, tragedy. You know, notice how different by, the, by attaching the my or the I to something even something inanimate, such as, you know, just as an object of some sort, and it gets broken and it doesn't work and it might be identical to yours, as soon as that my is attached to it, somehow that experience is elevated. It's somehow much, much more important. It's something which I grasp to, I hold on to. One of the basic human conditions that the Buddha is speaking about, in fact, the very source of the problem, is the source of grasping, holding on to. Actually holding on to experience, holding on to things which are transitory. Actually thoughts, I've always you know, kind of you know, felt this was probably the better way they ought to come. Thoughts ought to come with a little label attached. The label says, just passing through. Now, if we actually saw that to all of our thought processes, then why would we take them so seriously? Why would we attach so much importance to them? Just like the vase, they become so important because I attach the sense of self to them. In fact, in many ways, your self is is a product of thought. It's a product of self-conceptualization. The ways that I conceive of myself. You know, I am good at this. I am bad at that. I like this. I don't like that. You know, we could have a list. We could have an enormous list of these preferences. I'm good at this. I'm bad at that. I like this. I don't like that, etc., etc. We could have a list, and that would actually, in a sense, be some kind of definition of yourself. But in a way, you're always telling a lie in this. Because you're not always good at this or bad at that. This is an attempt via language to pin down who and what we are. We do this to others. Have you ever noticed one of the first things we try to do with people when you're introduced to somebody you don't know? You say, well, what do you do? What's your profession? What's your job? Almost as if it says something about them. Does it say anything about them? I actually had the most beautiful answer to this once. I was in South Africa teaching. And I fell into this trap myself, and I said to this person, I said, and what, and, you know, we've been chatting for a little while, and I said, what do you do? And he came up with the most wonderful answer. He said, I play at being professor of linguistics. <laughs> Which I thought was just the right answer. Yeah. In a sense, that's what we're doing. There is a seriousness to the play, but we play at it a lot of the time. Any of these conceptualizations that we hold on to ourselves, are true often for a brief moment in time. For a brief second or two, for a brief year or two, for a brief hour or two, but they're shifting. They are not actually us. Yet we grasp after them. We hold on to them. We hold on to them as being defining characteristics of somebody else, as if it somehow tells me about them. We hold on to them for ourselves as if that tells us something about who or what we are as well. There is something deeply problematic about the idea of, actually, let me come back to the Buddhist phrase, of being a not-self. Now, a not-self is not the absence of a self in the sense of, you know, you came into this meditation hall, you thought you came in with a self, and now all you've got is a self-shaped hole. (laughs) It's not like that at all. What it is, is you came in with something and you go out with a process. 
This is the Buddha's understanding. The Buddha was always interested not so much in what things were, but in how they worked. You know? There was a very big debate in ancient India. Again, I don't want to go into it, it's not the time, but I just want to mention it very briefly. There was a very big debate in ancient India which was on the nature of the self. And there were those very much in Indian society who proclaimed that there was, and these were the Brahmins primarily, that there was a fixed permanent self within each individual and that either was going to be liberated or it was going to go on from birth to birth. And then there were other groups which were much more nihilistic that declared that there wasn't any self at all. Now the Buddha said, I'm not going to even enter into this debate. It's really silly. I'm not entering into is there or isn't there. Just through the common way that we use language, we predicate that there is a something going on. And it's the nature of how it's going on that the Buddha is much, much more interested in. So if you want a quick answer to my sort of almost um, rhetorical question here, you know, what is it to be a self? Well, what it is to be a self here is not to be a thing. What it is to be a self is to be a process. And a process that is only at an end, if you like, and I'm going to give a a particular personal view here, that's only at an end with death. That's the process that we know. So we, instead of, as I say, a self-shaped whole, what we have is a movement and a shift in perspective to something which is just like the rest of the world, the rest of everything we perceive, actually changing. It's not fixed. So there is no fixed self, or, if you want to um, actually translate this term anatta properly, then anatta means really there that Buddha is teaching what is not self. So it's not no self. I really do try to emphasize this and stress it. When the Buddha is talking about the nature of the self, it's not a question of is there a self or is there no self. He's not entering into that debate. What he's saying is what is not self in our experience? If we actually start to examine that in experience, and I, and I actually had this you know, very long thing when I was living in India, um, again studying, um, when we start to examine the nature of our experience, what we will find is a lack of fixity. What we'll uncover for ourselves is process. When we begin to do what the Buddha recommends, which is not speculate and hypothesize about experience, but when we stand close to experience, when we really get up in close, particularly in meditation, then we begin to see process. We begin to see the instability of the mind. We begin to even see the instability of factors such as what we call feeling. Feeling here identifying often just the pleasantness or unpleasantness which is there to physical sensation or even mental sensation. When we encounter a thought or when we encounter something bodily, physically, that actually that's often shifting. There will be varying changes, for example, even the degree of uncomfortableness of something. Some moments we think we can sit with, say, the pain in the knee, and other moments we think, I've got to get up, I've got to get out of here, this is no good, this pain in the knee. You know, and it's going through varying intensities. Um, actually, sometimes relaxing into it, we might sit for a while, and actually it's gone completely. And actually it feels quite pleasant sitting here. And then it usually comes back with a vengeance again. Um, so it's changing. Even this physical sensation is changing. And notice one of the things that it isn't, it isn't under our control. The Buddha's idea of there was a real self, a fixed self in our experience, it would be controllable. It would be controlling our experience. It would be like the little crane driver sitting in his crane cabin, pulling all the levers. They talk about this particularly in psychology as being the homunculus in the head, the little man who sits in the head controlling all of experience. There is no such figure. You know, experience is rising and passing. I don't know how familiar you are with uh, a very famous meditation text, which is called the Satipatthana Sutta. 
in the Satipatthana Sutta, which is the four ways of founding mindfulness, you know, mindfulness being you know, something which is entered into the modern vocabulary big time these days, um, but mindfulness here being an examination of four types of mindfulness, the mindfulness of body, the mindfulness of feeling, the mindfulness of mind, and the mindfulness of that which makes up the mind's contents. When we stand close to that experience, we begin to see that actually there's nothing fixed within it. We begin to actually, if we can really stand close to it in the way the Buddha recommends, and the way he recommends is he says, to see the body as body. Almost, it's tautological. You know, it sounds like a tautology. The body is body. What do you mean by the body is body? Well, often we add things into it. Instead of seeing the body as this body, we see it as my body. This beautiful body. This body I don't quite like. This aging body. You know? So there's all kinds of other qualifiers that enter into this rather than just having bodily experience. We start identifying it. You know? And there is a great sense of the search for identity in this identification. And much of what I've spoken about is actually the search for identity. You know, we search for an identity. We search for identities in the I-ness, the minus of our experience. Or we search for it sometimes through the I-ness and minus of those who are around us. You know, my wife, my children, my family. You know. There's identification there that gives me a sense of solidity of being in this world and founded in this world in some way. This led the actual the um, French existentialist philosopher Jean-Paul Sartre actually to take a very poor view of human beings. In being a nothingness, he said that human beings basically wanted to be tables and chairs. You know, here, tables and chairs don't change very much. Um, they also have a great sense of identity. The chair's identity doesn't change that much. You know, um, the table's identity doesn't change that much. They have a solidity about them. Actually, it's all things that human beings lack, mostly. We lack um, this stable sense of identity. Um, who do you want to be? I mean, I could never answer that question when I was a child. Or well, what do you want to be? I haven't got a clue what I want to be. Never did find out, really. <laughs> yeah. Who do you want to be? That's an even bigger question. Yeah. Well, I could be whoever I want to be. Yeah. The searching through, it for it for, through externals, externalities, well, this is often a failed project because those externalities change, even if you have children, and however much you identify them, those children will leave home. You know, as we all know, you know relationships are fragile. You know, relationships are not the stable, solid things that we often attribute to them, particularly in the throes of love, uh, that they're going to be. They're going to go through changes. Um, you know, no matter how long or old, you know, how long the relationship or how long lasting the relationship is, change is involved. Relationship is actually nothing other than change here. So we can't actually look for stability of identity in this because actually there's changing identities. And it's very sad, I think, when people, you know, wake up one morning, one looks at the other and goes, you've changed. <laughs> you know, surprise, surprise, you know, over a long-term relationship. So actually relationship itself is other, nothing other than negotiated change over a long-term period of time. That's what it is. You know, it's not the meeting of two identities that can somehow live together forever as unchanging identities. You know? um, so there has to be change involved in that, and that change has to be acknowledged and recognized and worked with for there to be any relationship. Relationship is not a given. It's something that is worked at. So identity cannot be found in these things. So we're searching for identity which actually cannot be pinned down a lot of the time. We cannot see it. We look for meaning in establishing things, you know, in our possessions. Again, if I'm mentioning existentialism, there is a, a French existentialist called Gabriel Marcel who, who said there was a big confusion that went on, particularly with Western humans, I think very much more even than when he was writing, because he was writing in the 1950s. 
And the big confusion was between two verbs, to have and to be. You know? But most people associated, from his point of view, having with being, no, sorry, being with having. So we are what we have. We highlight the sense of having and accumulation becomes the name of the game. Western societies thrive on that. The advertising industry thrives on it. It prospers from it. Have you noticed actually how a lot of advertisements appeal to your sense of identity? Appeal to how fulfilled a person you're going to be if you get X or Y or Z. Well, you're going to feel really fulfilled and have a sense of identity until the new model comes out. Yeah. And then you'll be required to go through exactly the same process of feeling a lack and then having to feed, uh, feed that lack. So if you want a basic definition of the Buddha's notion of what it means to be a self, as we try to live it ordinarily, it's the feeding of lack. And the attempt to stabilize ourselves in some way, either through creating of spurious identities and identifications is part of that sense of identities. And actually materialism fulfills a wonderful role because it's a constant generation of the sense of lack and the feeding of lack. So actually, you're really good if you're a good consumer if you don't really do have a stable self because actually that's what the advertising industry works on is really highlighting that and saying, actually, with this, you could be a self. Yeah. And you could be somebody who has this. Now, the Buddha spoke about all of what I've talked about in much, much more general terms in a very, very specific framework. He calls this framework of understanding the self, he calls it five khandas, you know, five aggregates. You know, what is aggregated together in experience? Now, I want to make something really, really clear here, because often this is greatly mistaken. So if you go to popular books on Buddhism, sometimes this is, this is um, wrong-headedly written about, is how I'd put it in the polite way. Um, often this is seen as actually, instead of having a self, one identical thing, what we get is five things. Yeah. Now, this was never meant to be taken in this way. What this was meant to be taken as is five perspectives we can take on what it is to feel that we're a self. The physical perspective, the perspective of Vedana, this is this almost untranslatable word, which is actually the pleasantness or unpleasantness of experience as it comes to us, both physically and mentally. All of our perceptual discriminatory functions... All of our habits, which actually has a technical word, which is sankharas, all these things which we form in the course of our lives, and actually we continue to regurgitate, Um, we're absolutely perfectly organic recyclers. We organically recycle our habits again and again and again. You know, this is what we're doing. And finally, the other perspective we can take on what it is to be a self is consciousness. Now, all of these, at some point or other in Indian thought, have been identified as being the sources of what it is to be a self. These are just simply five perspectives we can take up on experience, the Buddha is saying, the experience of what it feels like to be a self. However, if we start to examine them, we find, A, that they are dukkha because we cling to them. We cling to them. The Buddha's image, actually, is very, very graphic, um, for kind of historical reasons, the Buddha often uses the image of fire. You know, fire was that which around which all of the Brahmanical rituals took place. And so he uses the language often of the Brahmanical ritual and the imagery that's there to undermine it. And instead of a self which is nice and happy and stable and going to you know, either get liberated or go from birth to birth until it gets liberated, what the Buddha gives us an image of is of five elements which are actually on fire. And we stagger around holding these five elements, thinking they're ourselves, and refusing to drop them. 
Think of this as a graphic image. Five bundles of firewood, all on fire, which we're holding on to. And because we think they're us, we don't drop them. This is the Buddha's image. It's when we stop identifying with any of these as being mine, I, that there is some possibility of being able to liberate ourselves from one of the actual driving forces and in many ways this would almost would have to be two talks to talk about this thoroughly one of the driving forces which is behind emiament in pain and distress and all of the unpleasantness often that is there in human life in terms of psychological distress then it's craving also which is productive of this sense of self craving and clinging instead of dropping the bundles not identifying with them, he says we engage in upadana. This is this wonderful word. Actually, it can, again comes from Brahmanical ritual. This word upadana was to actually put firewood on your fire. <laughs> so not only have we got five burning bundles, we're actually adding to them. And we're keeping them burning. Yeah? So this is why you know, experience is painful. Experience is painful when it's interpreted through this veil, through this uh, interpretive, almost mesh of the self and our identification of some kind of stable self behind it. So by constantly clinging and craving to this, we are literally adding flames to the, you know, fuel to the flames, again and again and again and again. There are elements around which our craving circulates, the craving for sensual things. Now, that doesn't have to say a big deal. Craving for sensual things is just liking things in ordinary life. You you, you like to be surrounded by nice things. You want a nice cup of tea, a nice cup of coffee. You want it in the morning when you get up or when you go to bed or whatever. Um, you like to have pleasant clothing, which isn't too coarse. Um, and then it might get into the, the headier realms of things like sexuality as well, because this word actually, kama tanha. Yeah, tanha is the craving. Yeah. Trishna is, is in Sanskrit. Now, there's something in this word which is there in the original language which is, isn't in English when we use the word craving, which is a deep pathos, because this is defining the human condition. It's defining what our ordinary experience of being a self is. Craving for sensual things. Craving to be away from unpleasant things. Craving is Janus-faced. The Roman god of the door looked in two directions. It's Jaina's face. It wants things and it doesn't want things. You know? So this is what a self is wanting. It wants things and it doesn't want things. You know, I want certain people in my life and there's others that I really don't want in my life at all. You know, I want certain nice things in my experience and there's other things I really don't want to happen to me. You know? And there's a big thing that most of us don't want, which is finitude, death, in the end. You know? However, we're kind of fighting an inevitable here. Because this is the one thing is, you know, as the Tibetans are very fond of saying, which is one thing absolutely certain is death. One thing is absolutely uncertain when. Yeah. You know, so we're fighting an inevitability here. So being a self is constantly wanting and not wanting, wanting and not wanting, pushing and pulling, wanting to be and what not wanting to be sometimes. Yeah. This is a much, much bigger story. But, let's just take the first one and give you again a graphic image that the Buddha uses. Sensual pleasure, particularly when we're hooked into it, and Western society, as I've tried to indicate, is very hooked into the notion of sensual, you know, sensuality. Wanting nice sensual things. This is, becomes almost a substitute for living. Yeah. You know, it's, it's the, the, the shopping phenomena of going out constantly looking for new things to stimulate my sensory desires. You know, until you kind of get bored with that one and you go out looking for something else. The Buddha likened this to a dog sitting outside of a butcher's shop. 
and the dog was thrown a bone. But the bone didn't have any flesh on it. It just, he said, it was smeared with blood. That's all. Yet the dog kept chewing the bone again and again and again and again, trying to get some nutrition from it. This is us with sensuality. We keep on doing it. We keep on repeating it again and again and again. I mean, I think there's a sort of, we keep on doing the same things, even when we know that it's not working, almost out of the sheer disbelief that it's not working. You know, I'll try it once more. It might work the next time. <laughs> you know, or one little bit more and it might actually do the trick. It doesn't do that. Sensuality is never going to bring us that resting place. That resting place that actually this not-self deeply craves. And this is a craving that is not one of those which is seen as actually the unfortunate forms of craving. Craving it takes us in this desire for sensual things, the desire to be, the desire not to be, and all of the various manifestations of it. You know, that's never going to bring us rest. Yet the craving for something in our lives, such as peace, contentment, is something the Buddha says is to be applauded, something we should look for, something we should investigate, something we should try and search for in our lives. Part of that contentment and that peacefulness um, that perhaps we long for is much more associated with not being a self. Not grasping after all the things that self want, all the sort of things that selves identify with. Being a self in the ordinary sense of the word, and I've only kind of scratched the surface on this tonight, so you'll have to bear with me. Being a self in the ordinary sense of the word is a very agitated experience. I don't know if you know that. That's what I was partly joking about when I said, you know, the I that we have of the first person pronoun is difficult to keep together. It's full of discomfort. It's really, you know... We're holding ourselves together often quite desperately. And through the various strategies that we know, unfortunately, they're not very effective for the most part. Now, the Buddha is saying, actually, stand close to your experience. You will not find any fixity. When we start to stand close in that way, we also can begin to relinquish a degree of grasping after things. We like to grasp after things because we think, you know, for example, that thing there is going to give me a permanent degree of pleasure. Yeah. Now, I don't know if you've ever noticed with even sensual things, there's a sort of law of diminishing averages or returns. You know, the more you do it, the less pleasurable it becomes until the pleasure almost becomes extinguished altogether in it. So actually beginning to stand close to our experience and really, really, really see it, you know, in the sense of not I, not me, not mine, we begin to see that there is literally nothing, no thing that we can hold on to that is going to give us that sense of being a permanent self in this world. So we rest, actually, in a contentment of being a not-self. Yeah. Not a no-self, but being a not-self. A not-self is also, on the other side of it, open to all kinds of possibilities, if you were selves, actually I would say, don't even bother listening to me. A bit late now. But don't bother listening to me. Don't bother in meditation. Go home. Save yourself the trouble. Because actually change wouldn't be possible. Being a not-self means that change is always possible. The Buddha, throughout the teachings, and throughout actually all the varying traditions of Buddhism, you know, from Indian Buddhism all the way through to Chinese, Tibetan Buddhism, all these forms of Buddhism often give the examples of people who seem to be really horrendous wrongdoers, you know, who actually gain the goal of Buddhism, which is to wake up. You know, that's the goal of Buddhism, is to wake up. You know, these people wake up despite what they've done. They couldn't do that if they were fixed. For example, if their, say, their intrinsic self was evil or their intrinsic self was bad. This is actually a very generous look at the human condition. It says no matter who you are, whatever circumstances you are, it is always possible for you to push the change in the right direction. Also to act ethically, you know, to begin to really develop ethically and to open up to an ethical sensibility 
which if I was a fixed self would be pretty damn difficult unless I was tied to a whole set of prescriptions. So I start to open up to an ethical sensibility. Again, this is another big story um, that would take a long time to describe. So many, many possibilities for being human, for really being human, for waking up, actually start to come through not being a self. Thank you. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.